Hey everybody, thanks for listening to Pocket Politics, the official podcast of Voting Smarter. At Voting Smarter, our goal is to be your political companion that will help you navigate an election cycle that's already in full swing. Which candidate aligns most with your views? Take our candidate matchmaker to find out. Do this along with checking some upcoming deadlines and much more with Voting Smarter. Download our iOS app from the App Store now and follow us on social media. Understanding history is arguably more important now than it ever has been. It's how us here at Voting Smarter, along with all of you, are making sense of what's happening in the country right now. And while this is a difficult, chaotic, and norm-shattering time in America, there does seem to be a consensus that, if anything, it's an historic time. The upcoming 2020 presidential election also seems destined for the history books. That's why our guest today is Danny DeLuna, professor of history at Santa Ana College in California. We talked to Danny about the upcoming election, along with elections past, money in politics, voting, and much more. This is our interview. All right. Thank you, Danny, for joining me. I appreciate your time. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. I appreciate yours. Yeah, of course. So let's just, um, just have a lot of questions for you. And you're like, you're the first, uh, if you don't count Terry, of course, you're the first uh, expert we got on here. So I'm going to ask you some questions. So. Alrighty. Um, the subject of uh, last week's segment that one of our content contributors, Rory, did was about contentious elections. Mm-hmm. So uh, many people feel that this election, the, uh, the 2020 presidential election, feels extraordinarily tense, to put it mildly, mm-hmm. uh, even by normal presidential election standards. From a historical standpoint, would you agree with that election, or is it just because we're in the we're in the thralls of it now that it feels uh, worse than <laughs> than it would normally? Well, right. So I, I think the the title of this podcast series is is pretty profound. Um, and I say that for a couple of different reasons. I want to say, because, I mean, if you look at the title, was it always like this, right? Um, I think you can take that to mean a couple of different things. Um, were we always this divisive as a nation? Were, were elections this this uh, vitriolic, if that's even a word? Were, was there this much mudslinging, name calling, that type of thing? Um, were elections always this close? Uh, you know, since the 2000 election, we've had with three, uh, I think three elections where you could count the popular vote as not being the decisive vote in the election. Uh, certainly, even if you couldn't count three, uh, then there's definitely been at least a few very close elections, one even decided by the Supreme Court. So I want to say that people feel like they're in a time where it's unprecedented and and that type of thing. But, uh, you know, to be honest, I want to say the answer to all those questions is, is no. And I don't know if that makes people sad, if that gives them comfort to know that we've been through this before. But, you know, I, I just want to say that I think we've been through many of these things before. Just to give you an example, um, one, one election that came to mind because, uh, you know, I'd heard the previous podcast uh, and, you know, seen the title and was it always like this? And, you did a great job, Connor, bringing up the 1960s and, um, you know, contentious elections in the past and that sort of thing. Violence in the streets, of course, in the 1960s, not all that different than what we have now. Um, but I, I want to say that as far as, you know, contentious elections where there was mudslinging and it just it just looked like it had devolved into a, a, just a, a name calling type of situation. Uh, the one that comes to mind is 1828. 
And the one that, that comes to mind for that reason uh, as being 1828 is because in that election, what you have is you really kind of have the, the first real uh, national election where you've got a greater selection of the population that's able to cast their ballots. But you've also got kind of real division between two political parties that, that end up really becoming our modern uh, political party system, our two major party system. And of course, being that it's the very first election where you have two political parties, uh, unfortunately, and maybe naturally, what you're going to have is uh, a complete devolution and just devolving into name slinging, uh, uh, name calling, mudslinging, all that sort of thing. And so um, you really kind of have this sort of dirty type of election where, uh, you know, you go so far as to insult the, the opposition's wife at one point. Andrew Jackson's wife was insulted. Um, and he wasn't necessarily not used to that, uh, but they went so far as, as to call her basically the, uh, in essence, a prostitute, the equivalent of a prostitute in one of the major newspapers in Massachusetts. And so, and rumor has it uh, that she saw that, she fainted and she passed away just before Andrew Jackson was inaugurated uh, in January of 1829. And he, he never forgave uh, his opponent's political party for that kind of mudslinging. So as far as name calling and mudslinging, that type of thing, I think we've seen this thing before. Yeah, uh, who, was, um, who was Andrew Jackson's uh, running mate? So his running mate in that one, I wanna say it was John C. Calhoun which is remarkable because Calhoun had previously been the vice president for the, the incumbent president, which was John Quincy Adams, the guy he was running against. Mm -hmm. um, so to have his running mate, and back then it wasn't, it wasn't as clear as it is today that there were tickets and running mates. Um, you know, you sort of just kind of voted for who you thought would make a good vice president, who you thought would make a good president. Um, so elections in, in the 18th century, 19th century wasn't, weren't as clear and tickets weren't as clear as they are today. We have a very clear ticket. You know, it's going to be Biden and Harris and, and Pence and Trump. Um, so, so back then, Calhoun got stuck on the ticket with Andrew Jackson, despite the fact that he was uh, the, the incumbent's previous vice president. So pretty remarkable. And they won. Yeah. Wow. Um, you mentioned the Electoral uh, College earlier. Um, yeah. The, uh, the Electoral College, actually, if you just want to, um, I still feel like people are, for those who don't really dive into it, people are still kind of confused on what the Electoral College's uh, purpose is in the first place. So do you mind talking a little bit about why the founders may even establish a system like this in the first place and then uh, what its purpose is in a presidential election? Right. And so I, that's where it gets a little bit maybe dicey for people, a little bit uh, unsettling. Uh, if you take, uh, you know, uh, Governor Morris or maybe Alexander Hamilton's point of view, the Electoral College was established because it was believed that the, the populace of the United States, the general population, really didn't have the information, the qualifying information, uh, possibly even the know-how, but the ability to decide uh, really on an intellectual level who was going to be their best representative and who would run the country uh, in the most efficient way. And, and I think that's kind of a cynical view of the population. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was accurate, maybe not, but that was kind of the original reason for the electoral college. Let's have, let's have, you know, the, the legislatures choose electors and then those qualified, let's quote unquote, those qualified electors will then go ahead and then make the, the ballot casting themselves for president. So, uh, you know, that's, that's been the system from the get go. That was the original compromise. Uh, one of the original compromises built into the Constitution, and, and it's been in effect ever since, for better or worse. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's actually that's perfect that you say that is because um, I it's kind of come into especially during the Democratic primary uh, this uh, the past year and a half two years is it's actually become a question on the debate stage amongst uh, the Democratic Party anyways is right. people's opinion uh, about the Electoral College because I think many members of the Democratic Party have started to notice an uh, <laughs> an unfortunate circumstance twice actually with Al Gore and most recently Hillary Clinton having right. uh, been subjected to like as you said the popular vote not matching the electoral college and so it's kind of come under the most scrutiny since the beginning of the 2000s so in your opinion do um do you think uh the electoral college is 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 here to stay and or do you sense a potential change in the winds in regards to that and if so if things were to change how would we go about doing that well, people have been calling for adaptations to our system or, you know, just outright throwing out the baby with the bathwater uh, for, for decades. I want to say even possibly even a century. So there have been calls to, to change the electoral college system, maybe even throw it out altogether. Uh, and President Trump, you know, uh, sent out his, his feelings um, as, uh, as far back as 2012 about the electoral college. And so he himself kind of weighed in on the conservative side. And so you kind of have, you know, both sides um, sort of weighing the, the efficiency of this system that we have. I think if people are listening out there and they don't understand what we're talking about, the electoral college system is really a system of uh, a group of party members from a particular party, whether they're Republican or Democrat, who actually do the, the technical voting for the presidency. Um, people may be shocked to learn, even at this stage in 2020, that uh, you as the, uh, you know, the electorate, meaning the people who, who cast their ballots in November, you actually don't vote for president of the United States. Um, you might vote for governor, you might vote for initiatives in your neighborhood or in your city, but you actually don't vote for president of the United States. You vote for the party um, that you wish to, to win the presidency. Um, and then what that party goes ahead and does is, they choose from a group of party members uh, within their own organization. Let's say, for example, if it's a Republican Party that, that uh, is selected by the voters, the Republican Party will then go ahead and choose party uh, officials or party loyalists from among themselves uh, to be the electors. And then that group of electors then goes ahead and casts their ballots in mid-December, sometime in mid-December. Then those votes are tallied officially. And in January, of the following year, for example, this is an election year 2020. So in January of 2021, the electors ballots will be officially counted. And that's when the official uh, presidency would be proclaimed for whoever wins. So I think people might be shocked to learn that they actually don't vote directly for president of the United States. I think that's probably what has people miffed or has people uh, maybe even shocked or confused about our system is that we actually, when you cast your ballot, we as the, the um, electorate, as the population, we don't vote for the presidency. So there've been calls to change that because you're right, Connor. I mean, we've seen in, in previous elections very recently that um, the, the election, it, it doesn't always go in the direction of what the, the popular vote says it should go. So for example, if Hillary Clinton won in 2016 in terms of the popular vote, so one should be put in quotes there when she won in terms of the popular vote, that didn't necessarily mean she was going to win the presidency. Wow. So um, there have been calls for, I think, you know, decades to, to change that. I do think it's here to stay. I think it, for, for no other simple reason than people have not put forth a better option. We really don't have a better option at this point. 
And I think there are some, some, some merits to having the system stay in place. Um, but to be honest, I'm not entirely imposed to throwing it out either. I think, um, I think the population is capable. I think the population does have sufficient information, or at least they have the resources to find out who, you know, votesmarter.org would be a great resource to use to find out who best represents your interest in your area. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, on the, on the back of that, since we talked about some of the um, contentious elections in the past and pretty much how, uh, how wrought with problems the outcome can be, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the, the costs of our elections. So right. uh, to go a little uh, further down from the, to go right under the presidency, the average cost of, of a Senate election has quadrupled since the 1990s. Uh, what uh, what shifts in either our economy, society, or even media do you think account for a surge that large in such a short span of time in campaign finance, do you think? I think it's a confluence of factors, really, um, especially since you mentioned post-1990s. Mm-hmm. There have been a, a couple of recent Supreme Court decisions that have been kind of landmark decisions in the way that people contribute to political campaigns. So. What you've got on the one hand is the big one, uh, the the most uh, you know uh, recent one um, from 2010 that had a big impact on political action committees and and um, organizations and especially corporations donating to political parties um, is you have the Citizens United uh, Supreme Court case in 2010, mm-hmm. and that decision from the Supreme Court in 2010 really kind of took the gloves off, so to speak, in terms of. Um, how much corporations can donate are really kind of unlimited in terms of how much um, corporations and, and uh, other, other organizations can donate to political parties. Um, and so I don't necessarily uh, have to go over the premise of it just to, to kind of explain that that was an uh, 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 important piece of legislation, or excuse me, an important decision for those who wish to donate kind of unlimited funds from their corporate coffers. So that kind of took the gloves off in terms of opening the treasuries of corporations. Um, in essence, what the Supreme Court was saying in that decision was that your, your wallet is free speech, that your, your dollars kind of equate to free speech. And whether or not you agree with that, the fact remains that that decision was important for corporations to be able to donate to um, you know, political action committees and, and the like. But then you have kind of a, a lesser known uh, and much more, uh, you know, kind of under the radar uh, Supreme Court decision, which was also very, very instrumental in kind of opening the floodgates for individual uh, donors to be able to donate to uh, an unlimited amount of um, politicians. And so in the McCutcheon decision of 2014, you've got the, the aggre- what they call the aggregate limits um, removed from um, uh, federal election uh, you know, uh, restrictions. So the restrictions on aggregate limits has taken off. And what that means is there used to be a limit on how much individuals could donate uh, to a group of politicians. It used to be something around maybe 150,000 or 170,000, something like that. And now there's no limit. As long as you don't specifically donate to just one politician, uh, you can send an unlimited amount to uh, a party organization, and then that amount can be split among different politicians for their campaign coffers. So, again, it kind of opens the floodgates to individuals being able to donate uh, basically an unlimited amount. Yeah. Speaking to that, um, a lot of uh, this current election, I feel like even the 
the midterm election of 2018 and even 2016, a lot of people seem to be taking a little bit more of a, an intense look at, uh, not just in political, but even uh, society structures about how we basically enact laws and, and, uh, and how important the courts are. I think people are beginning to realize that a little bit more too. What do you think some of the maybe even obvious remedies that we as voters can do to sort of stave off uh, systems such as uh, uh, those Supreme Court decisions and even lobbying too? What are some things that we as voters can do, to, do you think, that can help remedy these possible avenues of corruption, do you think? Well, you can vote. <laughs> I think it's as simple as that. I, I think there are still, and this is the reason why there are so many get out the vote campaigns on both sides. There are so many efforts to, to get people out of their homes. And I know that's much more difficult uh, and it's been rendered sometimes impossible because of the current pandemic. But um, and that's really kind of job number one is just to get people out to the polls and to, to understand that their vote, uh, you know, has an impact and it can matter. And um, that they need to, you know, uh, understand that there's just there there's just more than just the presidency at stake. Is that in some cases maybe it's even more important uh, to realize that you have the 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 ability to impact uh, local legislation in your area, um, uh, measurements uh, on ballots that discuss how to spend taxes in your area, whether the to to distribute the tax money. Uh, that comes into the you know state coffers or city coffers to local schools or whether to distribute it to uh, law enforcement. Um, those decisions are much more impactful than who's going to be the next president of the United States. I want to say in many cases. So, uh, yeah, you have presidents you know enacting tax legislation or or at least signing off on tax legislation that affects the electorate. But you also have these these uh, you know kind of subtle pieces of legislation that affect how your neighborhood operates and how your city operates. So I think one is just helping people to understand that their vote still matters, even if they feel like they live in an area, California, not picking on California, but as an example, California is a blue state and it has been a blue state for a long period of time. And so, you know, you might think that, okay, well, if I'm a Trump supporter in, in this state, then he's not going to win California's 55 or 50 some odd, um, you know, electoral college votes. And that, that may be true. But you still have tons of initiatives on the ballot that will affect, you know, everything from you know law enforcement to uh, how schools are renovated, um, to you know just the voting process itself. Um, states control the voting process, and so that's been uh, very you know um, popular in the news and very controversial as to how the voting process is going to work, given that you know it's it's been compromised you know internationally and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, I, I really think just making sure that people understand that their vote still counts and it still matters, no matter what they may think about how ineffective it is, it's still very effective. Yeah, I'm also I'm also curious. This wasn't a prepared question, but that just made me think of something. A lot of people have made comparisons to uh, a time in uh, in regards to the inequality we're kind of seeing, and even not just in our politics, but in our economics. And a lot of people have been making comparisons to way back to the beginning of the 20th century, like the Teddy Roosevelt, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt uh, era, and how avarice the, the, the gap was between the very rich and the very poor. Can you think of anything that we could learn from, from, back, uh, from back then, from what Teddy Roosevelt did? Because we did end up, it did seem like 
we were going down a path similar to today in that a lot of money seems to be concentrated. And then we managed to kind of pull back on that a little bit. Is there anything we can learn from that era that can maybe uh, be helpful now? Oh, I think there's always things to learn from history. And this is one of the things that I do in my classroom as well, back when we actually used a physical classroom, but I would put quotes up on a slide and I would, uh, you know, read from the quotes one by one, go down the list. And I would ask students just one question basically. And they would have, you know, if you had a, a cell phone that you could punch in, you know, a survey answer to, you use your cell phone. Some instructors do that. But I would just use kind of, yeah, you hold up your hand and you hold up one finger. One, if you think that that quote is from the 21st century, and then two, if you think that quote is from, let's say, the 19th century or something like that. And I would put up a quote about foreclosures and how uh, people think that Wall Street runs the system and it's all run by corporations and, and moneyed interests and that sort of thing. People were very surprised to see that some populist quotes, uh, in particular, you have a quote from uh, Mary Ellen Lease. Uh, who was a famous populist leader in the 1880s and 1890s. And she lambasts Wall Street and she lambasts the, the mortgage system and the foreclosure system for, for uh, closing out on small-time farmers who had no ability to pay their debts to creditors, especially the big banks. And so, you know, you just take one quote from one of her speeches. And this was, especially when I used to do this exercise uh, near the, the end of the 2008 financial crisis that we had in this country, where foreclosure was a, a major uh, sort of impact on the, the local population. And my parents were, you know, were no strangers to that. They themselves were included in losing property on that. Uh, and thank God they weren't rendered homeless, but that, that was a possibility. And so uh, many people lost property, many people lost jobs and, and, and homes became foreclosed on. But that quote that I took could have easily been stated by somebody who was maybe a, a 99 percenter or something like that, or somebody who was uh, a protester against how Wall Street uh, had gotten, gotten into this you know, 2008 mess and couldn't get us out of it. And so the government had to bail us out and that sort of thing. So people were very shocked to, to see that some of these same things were reoccurring and, and some of the same issues came up 100 years later. And one student said that he was... I think he said he was sad. And I said, why sad? And he said, well, nothing's changed. And I said, whoa, whoa, that's not, that wasn't the point of the exercise. I'm not trying to get you to see that nothing ever changes in this country. But what I want people to see is that we've been through some of these things before, even pandemics, God forbid, we've been through these things before. Um, and we need to figure out how we got out of them previously. And maybe that can shed light on how we can get out of it now. And so you brought up the idea, Connor, of, of racial injustice and, and social unrest. Um, one of the things that's little known that Teddy Roosevelt did was he started a federal investigation of what some states were doing, in particular Mississippi and Alabama, what some states were doing uh, to the African-American constituents in their states. And I say constituents not because they were necessarily allowed to vote, but just because they were supposed to be equal citizens of their states. And what was happening is that there was an unequal application of the law in the sense that African-Americans were being arrested, were being apprehended, were being jailed uh, for much longer periods of time. They were being jailed much more frequently than their, their um, other counterparts, their white counterparts and that sort of thing. And so he began a federal investigation of some complaints that he was getting from constituents in those two states in particular, Alabama and Mississippi. And this federal investigation uncovered unfair practices in the criminal justice system. And so that's one thing that Teddy Roosevelt doesn't necessarily get noted for because he's kind of seen more as a trust buster. Yeah. And I think uh, you also mentioned that, Connor, is that he was this guy is, is seen as kind of like the, 
the people's man, the little guy's uh, benefactor, the guy who would go to bat for the farm, and he did, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, helping to break up the standard oil reserve, um, helping to break up Northern Securities, which was one of J.P. Morgan's biggest assets. Mm -hmm. And so going to war with some of the same, you know, Wall Street investors that maybe helped him get elected was remarkable. Um, and the Roosevelt's have a history of, of being kind of anti-elitist, which is interesting since they actually are descended from one of the richest families in this country's history. So it's just amazing that, that some people, you know, have the ability to sacrifice like that and to, to really just, uh, you know, uh, put the interest of, of uh, if you want to call it the little man, above their own. I think it's just remarkable. So we can learn from that type of thing. We need to maybe put people in office who exhibit that type of, not just uh, verbiage, not just rhetoric, but some people who can show that in their past, uh, they've done things like that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, I want to switch a little bit to um, kind of go back to Congress for a little bit, uh, just because I also think that I've been, uh, I would always like to tell people that uh, one of the things that doesn't really get focused on enough is, and actually people have varying uh, opinions on, is uh, term limits, especially for, for people in Congress. And right. at the beginning of our country, serving in Congress was, and please correct me if this abused me, if I'm incorrect in this, Congress was viewed more as, as a public service uh, and not necessarily a career. You know, it's something you did in addition to, you know, running, running a store or something you put on pause or gave to like your, your son and then you went and served. Now we see senators and congressmen like Mitch McConnell who have been there since, for, for decades, I think since like the mid eighties. What do you think also accounts for a shift like that in our politics? Right. And, and to start off, you're 100% accurate in saying that the, the, the idea behind public service in this country was very much kind of rooted in the, the ancient ideas of Greek politics. Uh, people like uh, Abraham Lincoln really admired this guy named Pericles, who, who uh, espoused the ideas of, of what he called civic virtue. Uh, the idea that you you sacrificed everything for your back then it was city. The Greeks had cities. They didn't have a, a unified nation uh, like the United States uh, in the modern era. So back then your city was your country, and you sacrificed everything for your city, and you uh, you you held no uh, sort of personal um, desires about you know aggregating your wealth based on your service or uh, becoming famous or, or gaining any kind of benefits on account of your service. You just served to benefit your local area. And I think that that is very much lost. Thomas Jefferson believed in the ideas of uh, a farmer's republic, an agrarian republic where people would, you know, uh, they would have no special interest in their service. There would be no, no, uh, no other benefit to their public service other than benefiting the public itself. You would do your job essentially in Washington DC and then you would go home and then farm your land and whatever the case may be. And so I think, uh, you know, while idealistic and, and maybe, you know, even bucolic, I think those ideas uh, are still, there's, there's still some merit to them. I think they're, they're still um, potent. And I think if we can bring that back, that, that notion of civic virtue in politics, rather than career interests and becoming a career politician, that was typically seen as negative, uh, even, even in ancient history. Um, and so if we can bring that idea back, then I, I don't see how that couldn't be beneficial. Although I will say uh, during times where there is great calamity, great emergency, uh, the Great Depression, World War II, uh, we've seen term limits kind of be thrown out the window, especially in, in terms of the presidency where, uh, you know, um, 
FDR was elected four times in a row. He didn't serve four full terms, despite what uh, the current president thinks, but he was elected four times in a row. And that was because the country felt comfortable keeping the leader who had gotten them through the depression and who was, who was doing his best to, to um, you know, unify the, the benevolent powers of the world. And they wanted to stick with that rather than interrupt that. So I think there is some merit to allowing people to serve, you know, an extended period of time, but uh, 37 years, I think, is how long uh, Mitch McConnell has served. So what would that be? That would be yeah, night since 1983. So you're right. I think since yeah. 1980. So 37 years, just it, it seems a little more uh, extended than I think most people would probably like because you, that's when the more entrenched you become in Congress, that's when I think you leave yourself open to the lobbying and, and the special interest that can then take a hold of you and boost your career and then you know, not to justify them, but wh why wouldn't you want to back somebody who, who uh, bankrolls your career? If you don't, then you'll see yourself turned out in the next election. So I think we can root out some of that corruption by, by bringing back some of those uh, restrictions on, on term. Yeah, just to like also uh, an interesting point just to be a little bit of, uh, of a devil's advocate on that point, which is I think Reagan famously said that although it makes sense to... Um, it's also an interesting uh, point to kind of look at the shift in, uh, in political thinking because you have uh, Nixon and Reagan, both Republicans, uh, very different kinds of Republicans, but Republicans nonetheless, and both had very um, different points of view on term limits. Nixon famously was like, we need that, we need fresh blood. We need to change, uh, flip the system over. And Reagan uh, thought that it would be an insult to democracy to say that people can't have somebody just because they've been in Congress for a few years, because if they want somebody, who's to say they, they can't have them? So it's, it's just an interesting, an interesting mindset that they're using democracy as the primary reason for both sides, for, for both points of view, which I think is pretty interesting. It, yeah, it is. I think that's the beauty of, of literature and speeches, that, that they can be sort of maybe not manipulated, but they can be bent to kind of serve one's, you know, uh, agenda or, or one's needs. And absolutely, you got two conservatives having uh, opposing views there. But you, you, it's interesting that you bring up Richard Nixon. And uh, I, I think you touched on it earlier is this idea about contentious elections. And I think another thing that uh, I want to say about was it always like this? And, and did we always have elections this dirty and this nasty? Uh, speaking of Richard Nixon, I mean, I don't think there was any, somebody who has the nickname uh, Tricky Dick, I think right there, I don't think there's anybody who, who uh, epitomizes uh, the, the nature of dirty elections like Richard Nixon. We have somebody who, you know, uh, on a regular and consistent basis would publish false voting records of his opponent and, and put them out there as though they were the actual voting records. People like uh, Senator Douglas or Congresswoman Douglas uh, from California in the 1940s and uh, Congressman uh, Voorhees, people like that who were on the Democratic side and uh, who he accused of being communist and, and then uh, purported to publish fake voting records um, from their previous uh, tenure as Congress people. And so I think it's that type of stuff that, that really just kind of uh, should, should hopefully help people understand that elections have been, been, been kind of contentious and even dirty and uh, sort of uh, stuck in the mud sometimes, you know, uh, in yeah. previous yeah. decades. Yeah. Uh, to to kind of continue, continue that thread to, uh, about the, the system, uh, many people in America will, or even outside of America, will kind of look at the American two-party system 
and say that it's it's a it prevents a broad sort of spectrum and political bents and ideologies from accessing the the national stage. Uh, do you find this uh, to be true? And in your opinion, do you think countries like the UK and Germany and their parliamentary structure, uh, do you think that makes for better government uh, or make for uh, makes for better governance uh, because of the multi-party system? You know, I don't envy the parliamentary system at all. I really don't as an outsider looking in and uh, I, I'm sure a political scientist might have a better uh, assessment of the situation overseas, but from what I've seen, especially coming out of Israel, Israel has a parliamentary system as well. And they might be the best example because here you have a, a country of, of tens of millions, maybe, uh, maybe less, a, a tiny country, uh, no bigger than maybe the size of New Jersey. And they can't seem to make a decision on who they want to lead their, their parliament. They can't even uh, come up with uh, uh, what they call a block majority, which is enough of a majority to be able to pick the next prime minister. So uh, for better or worse, you have uh, Mr. Netanyahu staying on. But uh, in the past two election cycles, their, their parliament has not been able to come up with a majority and as a result, elect a prime minister and then start to get things done. A part of that is because of recent corruption scandals alleged uh, in the direction of uh, Mr. Netanyahu. But, uh, you know, I don't envy that system at all. The idea that there's just such a plurality that you can't quite possibly gain a majority. Um, that just sounds like deadlock to me. But you know what? Um, Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, you mentioned, uh, they, you know, they've had a parliament for, for in some cases, centuries. And they seem to be, you know, you know having not that much issue getting things done, uh, with the exception of Brexit. But, you know, that's kind of more of a, a, an agreement between the European Union and the United Kingdom. But uh, locally, I think the United Kingdom can, can, you know, suffice on their own with their parliamentary system as it is. And so I, I think there's merits on both sides. I really wouldn't want to see this country with its size um, and with its disparate electorate go into a mode where there's a multi-party system. It sounds like it would be beneficial. And you'd want to believe that giving, you know, somebody a chance outside the two-party system would be a liberating idea. You'd want to think that. But um, then there's also the notion that who's going to be that sacrificial lamb? Who wants to be? I mean, you don't want to be the Ralph Nader. You don't yeah. want to be the, the um, Ross Perot of the election. You don't want to be the guy who not only loses and loses ignominiously, uh, you don't want to be the guy who gets accused of splitting your party, right? Because the yeah. one notion that, that carries through history is the party that splits loses. And so if you're the Ross Perot or the Ralph Nader of your group, I mean, you're going to be looked at as a pariah for the rest of your political career. So, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not saying people shouldn't run independently uh, off of, you know, the, the fear that they might be turned out or, or they might be uh, embarrassingly handed their, their hat. But uh, it would be difficult in this country to to see anything other than a two-party system. I think it it can still work. It just needs a great deal of reform. But then again, I wouldn't be opposed. If somebody wanted to throw it out tomorrow, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing a third-party candidate uh, run based off of uh, you know uh, past past merit and and past voting record rather than just uh, demagoguery and rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to switch to uh, the topic of, of the media now. So uh, a lot has been, a prevailing opinion, uh, whether incorrect or not, has been that 
the media used to be, and by I guess by media, just to be a little bit more specific, I'm not referring to to social media in this uh, in this context. Sure. Um, but uh, the, the media, uh, news sources, newspapers and the like, used to be somewhat uh, monastic, unbiased news sources that then randomly or at some point in our history switched to being opinion-laden uh, uh, partisanships, like and having an opinion and, and choosing which party best serves their needs. Um, did that shift actually occur? And was the, ever, was the media ever truly unbiased? I think there's a couple of different ways to answer the question, or at least there, there's maybe two different parts to my answer. I want to say that my first answer just automatically would be no, because what comes to mind is you've got the, the contentiousness of the early elections. And even before the, the turn of the 19th century, you've got the contentiousness of the election of 1796. And this is just the historical perspective. I imagine that's part of the reason why you brought me on is to give, <laughs> give the audience a, a little historical perspective, right? Uh, and, and maybe to, again, this is maybe what goes back to the idea of, I don't know if they're comforted by this. I don't know if they're distressed by this, but maybe things have always been like this because in that very first contested election, because the first two elections in this country were not contested. It was George Washington all the way and you didn't have the guts and, and you didn't have the stupidity to vote against him. Uh -huh. <laughs> and and in the first contested election, you've got John Adams versus Jefferson. Uh, and ironically, they actually end up being in the same administration because voters just couldn't get it right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you but you've got this contested election to the point where Thomas Jefferson actually accuses uh, John Adams and his administration of being a reign of witches. Uh, you know, he didn't publicly uh, make that accusation, but he said it uh, in a letter to a friend that once this reign of witches is over, then the country will be much better off. And maybe he was right because he was elected as president in 1800. But even then you had this, this deep seated contentiousness between uh, what was kind of the Northeast manufacturing sector of the country and then the more agrarian, definitely slaveholding uh, region of the country in the South. And uh, Madison himself said at the beginning, at the outset of this country's uh, you know, uh, beginnings. He said that the, uh, the, the true division between this country wasn't between big states, big states and small states. It was going to be between uh, North and South. And, you know, lo and behold, he was right. So I, I think in, in many ways, this country has had this type of division where you see newspapers take sides. And um, they're, they're, in answer to question, more direct answer, has the media always been a, a source of disinformation uh, you can look to the, the, the case of Maria Monk in 1836, who seemingly had just become a, a refugee of a convent and ran away. And the, apparently the first place that she sought refuge was a publishing house. And she went to this publishing house and she told her story about how she'd been abused. And, and, and abuse is nothing to scoff at, but the entire story was made up. It was falsified to make Catholics appear to be monsters and to be uh, sexual deviants. And as a result, there were, there were riots uh, for the next few years. You had riots against Catholics and you had this, the rise, it, it really kind of inaugurated the rise of this quote unquote nativist movement. And nativist meaning basically that we want America to be white for Anglo-Saxon Protestants and we shun all other contributions from other groups, even Catholics, because Catholics were seen as being immigrants, they were Irish, they were Italians, they were people who were under the thumb of the Pope, and they were brainwashed by the church. So you had this type of thing. Um, 
you had in, in the, the late 1800s, uh, just before the turn of the, the 20th century, you had uh, the sensationalism against uh, the Spanish Empire. And it really kind of led to uh, the, the advent of the Spanish-American War, where the United States acquires uh, you know, control over Cuba and the Philippines, and, and then you know, sort of atrocities ensued from there. So that yellow journalism really is nothing new in this country. What is new, I think, is the idea that now we see a much more demarcated line between left and right. It's pretty easy to point out if a newspaper or a source of media is left-leaning or right-leaning. I think that seems to be novel, but in the case of, of just in general media taking sides and even spreading lies and disinformation, you know what, uh, maybe again, this is unfortunate, but that's not new in this country. We have kind of a long history of media. Like I said before, you had you know, people accusing Andrew Jackson's wife of being a profligate and he always kind of uh, blamed those comments on, on her demise. So this idea about you know, spreading disinformation, unfortunately, it's really not anything new. Oh, yeah. Okay. But that actually makes me feel weirdly a little bit better, I guess. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, I actually want to go back to, as my, as my last question, I'm going to go back to something you said uh, earlier. Um, I agree with you when you say that no matter which side you fall on, the, the call to vote this year does seem to be louder than it has in, in years, and especially in, in my lifetime, at least in my, in my voting life. Um, so I'm going to end with a super important question here, which is, why is election day on such an awkward date of the first Tuesday in November? <laughs> right. And it, it just seems like the most random, the way that the, uh, the constitution lays it out is it has to be on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And so it's even more complicated. And it's just, it just makes you think that is the most random choice and it's the most awkwardly worded statement as well but they're actually believe it or not there's a method to the madness of our founders hey, good. and that that method is one november was chosen because it was post harvest uh so typically you'd have the, the the blooming of the spring and the summer season uh i don't know if i'm not a farmer so do you call it blooming i don't know whatever but either <laughs> way you've got the you've got the the you know the harvesting of the crops from from the bountiful hopefully spring and summer season. And so you've got farmers busy you know, doing that and attending to that. And so the idea was, well, let's hold an election in November where they're not as busy. And then the idea was, well, we can't have it on Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's day. And for better or worse, this country was built on Christian foundation. So we can't have it on Sunday. So what about Monday? Well, the idea was, well, wait a second. We can't have it on Monday either. That's when farmers are, are uh, you know, they're, they're closing the books. They're, they're reeling in how much you know, they have they, how many bushels, uh, again, I don't know if they use the word bushels, yeah. but uh, how much they've reaped in in terms of their, their, uh, their harvest and how much uh, they're taking in, how much they can sell, how much they need to keep and that sort of thing, how much they can store. So they're rendering the books on Mondays. And so you can't have it on Monday. So what about Tuesday? And so they settled on the idea of having it on the first Tuesday after the first Monday. Uh, and the reason being is because, you know, you can, you can start a, a month on any day you want. You can start it on a, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. So you have to have a Monday first and then you have a Tuesday, which is why in 2012, you had the election on November 6th. And in this upcoming election, I believe it's the third, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, it is. So hopefully that gives a little bit of an explanation as to why that awkward day and, and maybe even month were chosen. But uh, apparently that's that's the idea. I mean, uh, in Europe, they vote on Saturdays because theoretically people have a better chance of getting to the polls since 
maybe not as many people work on a Saturday. I think that's a fabulous idea, but changing anything in this country seems to be a kind of a pulling teeth kind of, uh, uh, you know, event. So good luck to that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. I, it was a very informative conversation and you cleared up a lot of stuff for me. So hopefully it does for others.